65 million. That's the number of refugees currently seeking asylum in the world today. Welcome to Seeking Truth, a weekly podcast exploring issues related to faith and culture. I'm Julie Royce, and today we're going to be talking about the refugee crisis, truly one of the greatest crises in the world. Perhaps the most publicized group of refugees are the 6.5 million from Syria. But there are millions of other refugees coming from dozens of other countries, many in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa, and sadly, many of them are children. Well, joining me today is someone who understands the plight of refugees very well. She's Finda Davis, a native of Liberia, West Africa, who fled the Civil War there in 1989 when she was just four years old. After five years of living on the run, she eventually landed in a U.N. refugee camp where she lived for about a decade. And if you think that those refugee camps are safe havens, Finda's story will definitely challenge your perspective. So, Finda, thank you so much for joining me this morning and for your willingness to share your story with us. Thank you. Well, Finda, I know you were only four when war broke out in your country. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the day that you and I understand your mother and your sister, Mm -hmm. when you fled the country, what was that day like when when the war broke out? It was very confusing. Um, I remember us waking up and there was just shooting all over the place. And uh, it was chaotic. People were just packing and running down the street. So my mom woke us up. She was like, we got to go. We got to go get packing. Well, we barely got packing. Uh, we just started running out of the house and we joined the, the rest of the group that was running down the street. And I could remember the strip bullets and uh, people falling and people dying, people getting hit. Um, crossing the street, you seeing rebels shooting at each other. Um, we were just one of the blessed group that made it out of Douala. Uh, Moravia without any wounds or none of our family uh, getting shot. Well, thankfully, you did get out of that war zone, but the country was all in upheaval. And so, I mean, from what I understand, you were several years on the run, Mm -hmm. just trying to survive. Give me an idea of what that was like. It was very dramatic for me as a child. It came a point I started imagining that it was a game. And then sometimes you would get hit with reality. When we were running from Douala, we came close to the border, to the cross station. And at that cross station was a swamp area that we had to cross. Uh, some parents had babies on their back that was trying to cross. But, you know, those sink, you know, they have the sinking sand. When you get in the sand, you just go down. Oh, huh. It was the same. Quicksand? Yeah, quicksand. Wow. Yeah, it was the same with the swamp. They either pull you out or you're going to sink. Uh, so a lot of people were sinking through that uh, quick uh, swamp area. And my mom was the first person to step in. And she had me and my cousin. And... Uh, she said that I cried my eyes out. She was telling me to let her go, to leave her so that she can, you know, so that we can, you know, go uh-huh. to a place to be rescued. But I, I didn't let go. And my cousin and I just kept pulling her out. So it was very, very dramatic. There was a lot going on. There so was, you pulled your mom out of quicksand and she would have died had you given up on her, which she told you to do. Yeah. She, uh, my cousin and I, we, mm. I couldn't let go. I couldn't mm. let go. You were saying some women left their babies and your sister older sister Mm -hmm. couldn't leave one of these babies behind tell me about that 
I remember our escape was through a forest and uh, we had to hide from the, uh, from the rebels. So on our way on one of those paths, uh, there was a baby on the road that was crying. Mm. Um, we passed the baby and she couldn't do it. She just started crying. She said, mom, I can do it. And she was a teenager then. Mm -hmm. She said, I had to go back. I can't leave him. He's so cute and so innocent. I can't leave him. And she named him Coca. And she went back and picked up that baby. And he wasn't a bad baby. He wasn't crying that much. Most of the ladies or women that left that baby was because of the noise that the baby created. Mm -hmm. Because we were actually, you know, hiding from the rebels and re trying to... Um, stay away from the rebels so the more noise we have that will give out our hiding our hiding spot so initially there were from what i understand about two to three hundred of you that fled together yes you said by the end there's only uh, 150 or so so about half about, of them died about. did you witness people dying was this did, did that just become a, a common event for you yes every time we reach to a, a cross section where we have the rebels and their gates and all that stuff we call it a border mm. we got to this border where we have all the rebels and they were searching people you know if you have money you have to leave it you have food you have to leave it behind you um when we got there if you're fat overweight they were beating all these women 25 latches like with with rotten why no reason like when they were beating all the big women, 75, if you're little, 50, elderly women, um, 25 latches, and then all the men was getting killed. Uh, a gentleman got killed right in front of me with a cutlass. And uh, the reason why that death was so traumatic to me was because the knife was in sharp. And it was dull. It was an old cutlass. And they kept just... It was very traumatic. That was one image I never, never was, I wasn't able to, to erase from my mind. And that's an image I'm stuck with for the rest of my life. And I was just crying and crying so loud. And my, I remember my mom telling me, you got to stop crying before, before they come and harm us or before they kill you. But I couldn't hold it in because we were all in the same group together. And um, so that was my first, um, the, with the strobe, straight bullets hitting people, that I got used to at some point, you know, running while some people are falling among you and dying. But to get killed uh, that way was very, very brutal. So mm -hmm. that was my first really brutally death that I experienced that. When you're seeing that much death, that much destruction, and you're so young, whatever happens when you're that young, it seems to be amplified. Seeing what you saw at such a young age, how does that impact you? Um, it made me stronger and I think it was with God's help because a lot of uh, young women my age that experienced that that we end up in a camp really took a different path in life mm. and up to today when I'm saying my testimony I tell people that it was only God because I was viewed as a really troubled child but I was able to counsel myself through it all well, you were on the run about, what, four or five years? Yes. And then you eventually, um, you went to Ivory Coast and then to Guinea, Guinea, where you were put in a refugee camp. Tell me what these camps were like and what your experience there was. The camp for us, the young children, it was safety. It was quiet. We were able to go to sleep and wake up without worrying that we have to be waked up in the middle of the night and start running again. 
Uh, but the camp also came with it ups and down. We in the camp was served the same food for I think over a decade. Well, it didn't change, so I won't say I think over a decade. As long as you live in the camp, you eat bulgur wheat and beans for breakfast. Bulgur wheat and beans. Yes, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And sometimes, when you're lucky, you get cornmeal. <laughs> mm. You get cornmeal for breakfast, and you should see the refugees fighting over that food. That, and that was that was the only food we had in the refugee camp. No fruit or vegetables ever? We had greens that we have to plant ourselves. They are our own little farming. Whatever we can get our hands on in the town that was uh-huh. closer to the to the camp, uh-huh. we, we uh, were able to plant our own vegetables. You were in three different camps? Yes. Um, were they all pretty much the same or were they different? The Lola camp was a little different because it was so close to the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my trade of the camp was pretty the same. So the violence that you experienced, I know you mentioned that you have scars on your body from what happened in those camps. supposed to be a safe spot. And it sounds in some ways you weren't being shot at anymore. Yes. You could sleep at night. Yes. But describe the violence. Where did that come from? The violence was among the refugees themselves. Power struggle and based on the experience from the war, it could be. I'm not trying to make excuses for them. I got raped in the camp by a citizen, hmm. um, a citizen of Guinea. So he was in a refugee. Um, in that case... He when, was a part of the camp or he would come into the camp from he, outside? He came into the camp. Hmm. And that... That case went nowhere because he was a citizen. We had no voice uh, in the refugee camp. I I felt like we had no voice. Mm -hmm. And when I also got gashed, the intent of those uh, boys and girls that did those, uh, that attacked me. um, You say gashed? Yeah. Cut, gash. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah. I think I have about over nine scars all over my body. Um, From one attack or multiple attacks? For one attack. The case was taken to the UN, and uh, I felt like nothing was done. Uh, Later on, my husband told me that those girls girls and guys that attacked me were on resettlement, um, political asylum to come to to go to the UK and to come to the US. Hmm. And that case got denied by the US and the UK because of the action towards me. Hmm. But I didn't feel safe in the camp at all because I think the fight among the refugees and the town people towards the refugees, those was just minor things that happened and there was no in, uh, there was no investigation there was no justice and i felt Were like there a police force within these refugee camps no there was no police force there so was, you have a city without police basically basically the un used to come to the camp I believe once a month or once every two weeks mm-hmm. uh when there was any case that or any situation that was going on in the camp was then reported to them. But the camp itself had its own council. They tried to have like a president and a vice president. Mm. When I got attacked, those leaders of the camp came to my family and just told them to let it go, that it was just kids fighting against kids. Uh, but it wasn't, it, it, that wasn't the case. I was literally attacked. And if you see the area that I was cut, it's all over my vein. So it's really, the, it was really the intent to kill me that night. 
And any reason or motive behind it? Well, there was a guy in the camp by the name of Daiko. Uh, he's dead now. And it's funny because I prayed that guy would take his life. Mm. I felt like that was the only justice that was done because that was my everyday prayer. He was romantically interested in me. And one of my really, really strong goal was to remain a virgin uh, until I get married. And I wanted to go to school and I wanted to go to college. And I really fixated on those goals. And this gentleman by the name of Daiko was romantically interested in me. And um, I told him no. And when I told him no, he told me that if, if I told him no, he was going to kill me. I then pretended to be his girlfriend for a period of time. But he was still forcing to be romantically, sexually mm. um, involved with me. And I said no. At that point, I, I said, you know, it's either I gave my life or but I'm not going to go to that extent. So um, he playing kind of like a cool um, uh, in the camp. They had an event in the camp and I was invited. For some reason, I did not want to go to that event. But then close friends to me, he went and motivated them and told them, oh, tell Finda to come to this event. It's going to be nice. We're all going to have fun. And I asked my sister to come with me. She said she didn't want to come with me that evening. So I ended up going alone mm. with my friends not knowing these friends were also bribed to to bring me out of the out of my tent that that evening mm. so when i went out uh i was at the event and uh they called me out uh one of the girl that did the gashing called me out. she said can we have a talk i said well, can we talk in here kind of like teenage stuff yeah. she said she said no um it's too loud in here can we go outside to talk when i came out uh the daiko guy uh, two other girls and the friend that brought me out, they all have knives, blades, mm. and racks. I mean, it was just like I was getting hit from all over. I don't know where I came. I don't know where the strength came from that night, but I just started running, kind of like the Civil War. My mom told me run. Mm. I ran for dear life. Mm. I just started running. They were throwing racks. I mean, cutting me, gashing me. I was bleeding. I mean, if you see the cut on my shoulder, it's like it was. it's really, really bad. And I ran and ran until I I was able to get to safety. I remember running to the police station, banging at the door. This uh, Camp Kola, uh, the Kola Kola Town Police Station, banging at the door. There was nobody there. It's like you just run for safety, and there is no safety. Almost gave a hope, and I started running back to the camp. Luckily, I had some uh, friends out there that was able to come and rescue me that night. Wow. Unbelievable, unbelievable. And there was nothing, uh, nothing done by the camp. There was a lot of incident in the camp that you think the UN or the IRC will investigate or provide some security or encourage some security, but there was, there was mm. nothing that was done by the the UN. And you <coughs> saying one of your goals was to remain a virgin. I can only imagine what that experience was like. I don't know if you want to talk about it. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's, that's an experience that really, <clears throat> really scarred me. I remember when my husband and I was, we started talking again and he asked me, are you a virgin? I'm sorry. It's okay. He asked me, he said, are you a virgin? I said, yes. And after our wedding, he said, why didn't you tell me you're not a virgin? 
I said, because I didn't give up my virginity. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It was stolen from you. Mm. It was. There was nothing done about it. I don't know what happened to that guy. I don't know where he is today, but he's just, he's, he's a free man. And he got away with what he did. How old were you? I think I was 14, 14 or 13. Mm. You're so I, young. Yeah. I came here and I went through counseling. And one thing I tried to remind myself is that you can only use lose your virginity when it's given out, when you give it up. Mm-hmm. And I kept myself throughout. Mm-hmm. But I believe that if maybe if it was, if it was a, if it was a faith based a faith based organization mm-hmm. uh, that believe in pr- promoting a religions or Christ- Christianity. Um, there was a lot of young girls in the camp that was exposed to sex at a very early age. That's one thing that really breaks my heart. Literally, it came to a point, some point in the camp where you saw babies having babies. There was like 10 years old, having 10 years old. And those relationships was with UNHCR workers. Like, they literally had an affair, 11, 12, 13 years old, having an affair with married UN worker. And they were only doing it for money because this employee, this worker works with the UN. He has money. He will buy you food or something other than bugger weed. He will buy you clothes. And most of the time, those young girls daily to provide for, provide for the family. Most mm-hmm. of the girls uh, will feel like, oh, if I did a UN worker, when it comes to supply, because we got to supply every month, the UN provide food and clothing for us every month, that, you know, they will favor me, they'll give me more food, they'll give me more clothes. So those those uh, kind of relationship was really encouraged in a camp. So it was considered a big deal if you were dating a UN worker, and which I thought was a really, really, really bad example that the, the organization was setting in the camp. And you see many girls, I have friends today that have babies by UN worker <clears throat> at a very early age. If they would have known better, hmm. if only they would have known better. So you say dating a UN worker, but it sounds a little more like prostitution. Basically. Because they were giving sex in exchange for... For money, food, and clothes. And and for their family. Did the family actually put pressure on them to do that, to provide these things? I, I think it's mostly, mostly friends. You see your friends doing it. You see your friends wearing new clothes. They have deodorant. That was a big deal. They have mm. a deodorant, a change of clothes, so mm. eating something other than bugger weed. You know, mm. if you see a friend doing that for their family, like, oh, I want to do the same thing. I think some parents encourage their children at some point. Um you know, you got to do this for our survival. And some girls actually did it together as silent to come to the U.S., to come to the U.K. And you know, if I did this guy, he would put in a good word for me mm-hmm. to get my family out of the camp. So the U.N. workers, from your perspective, didn't have any integrity or even mm-hmm. decency, it sounds like. None. And no. were they all like that? Or was that, was that sort of the culture that was created there? Majority, I was in 95%. 95% only I remember um, I got introduced to a UN worker and uh, I it was based on the beauty pageant thing we did uh, in a camp and I won and I got introduced to him and um, he was like a price 
I won the beauty pageant. It was going to mm. take me out for dinner. And I remember uh, after the dinner and everything occurred, he was an orderly man. He was probably, probably 55 years old. And I was just uh, 14 when I won the, when I won the contest. And uh, so after all the, the award and everything was done, he took me to a hotel. Mm. And when we got to the hotel, he was like, oh, this is part of your price. You're staying here. Um, I just thought about this actually, and I, so I really didn't have a good feeling about that, you know, whole experience. And we, I would say, I, I would call him a good man because he saw the fear in me, and he probably knew that um, I wasn't interested. When we got there, it was a very that was my first time being taken from the camp to come to a town to be in a hotel and there was AC and everything. Mm-hmm. It was a very unique experience. But when we got in the hotel, he was staying in the scene. He was gonna stay in the scene room with me, and I remember laying down on the bed, curl up. I lied down like this and didn't sleep. My eyes were like shining open and praying to God to get me out of that room until the next morning. And he saw the way I was curled up and I was shaking. Mm-hmm. And when I left the next morning, he just took me back and dropped me off to the camp. He was like, you missed your chance. And so when I came out, I was explaining to my friends, I said, oh, you really missed out. You should have given up. He would have done everything for us. Oh, so that's what they do. That's mm-hmm. when they started explaining everything to me. He would have bought you clothes. He would have bought you deodorant. Mm-hmm. He would have, you would have stopped eating buckwheat. You know, you'll be getting rice instead of <laughs> rice instead of buckwheat. He didn't push me that mm-hmm. night. He didn't. I, I think I, I would say mostly the pressure for the pressure was a peer pressure because mm-hmm. all the girls were doing it and they wanted to provide for their family. Mm-hmm. And I thank God that. I wasn't aware that that was going to be the result that would have influenced me at that point. Mm. But when I came home, I started explaining it to my friends. I said, well, what you, why you think we are all dating? That's how it started. You should have given yourself up to him and he would have done all these things for you. Mm. And I was like, at that point, I was like, well, thank God. <laughs> what gave you, I mean, after all of you have been through, you should not have had a sense, of, obviously you did, of work. How did you have these things, despite the way that you were treated like you didn't have worth? I would say it's a blessing. Most of the time I see that maybe God was keeping me to do something better. And that's one of my motivations. Maybe God was keeping me because I even asked myself that. Mm -hmm. Like, why me? And even when I made it to the U.S., why did I make it to the U.S. and my sister didn't make it to the U.S.? She was the prayerful one. She was the true Christian. I mean, she prayed her heart every day. Mm. You know, so why did he choose me? And at some point I want to give up. Mm. And I'm like, he kept me for a purpose. Let's talk about your spiritual journey. You grew up in a Christian home from what I understand. But really, like you were saying, your sister was the one that really seemed to have a real faith. Mm -hmm. You didn't have that at first. Talk about how you came to know Jesus. I came to know Jesus through my sister. My experience growing up, I really didn't have, I grew up basically in the civil war, so I didn't have the opportunity to go to church, the opportunity to really experience God, to study the Bible. Uh, my sister did. And uh, my my sister's faith was, faith was a lot stronger, even than my parents. I saw her going to Bible studies, going to church every day. And I was more so like the time boy type. I was 
interested in those little games and playing with the boys and climbing trees and all that stuff. So I was really busy doing all of that. But when I saw how strong her faith was in God and in everything she prayed, even at the worst time, when I got gashed and nothing was done about it, and I remember her coming home and just praying and praying. And I just really wanted to know this guy that she's serving. Like, how can you how can you be content? How can you be happy through everything that we are going through? So they were doing a Bible study once. And she was a part of the Bible study. So one night, I just thought I wanted to come with her. And we went for the Bible study. And it was fun. So I decided to complete the Bible study. I, after the Bible study... As we go through it, uh, my faith grew stronger and I started believing. And throughout the Bible study, I decided to give my life to God, uh, become a born-again, a born-again Christian. And then I got baptized. And then since then, uh, I I was safe. Hmm. Let's talk about your parents. Your father, he was gone when yes. the Civil War broke out. Yes. Uh, he eventually ended up in the United States. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But your mother left you and your sister when you got to that refugee camp ostensibly to go back and maybe see how things were if she could get back into Liberia yes but I'm sure for you you just felt abandoned yes when she left um I remember she was leaving as if she was going to the market or something to come back Hmm. But something in me felt like she wasn't coming back. So even she was telling me that day when she was leaving that how I cried. I was nine years old. I don't we get to two refugee camp was nine. And um, she said, I cried. I mean, I fell on the ground and was rolling. <laughs> I can imagine. That would be your and whole world. I wanted to come with her so bad. I'm like, well, why can you take me? She said, well, I'm just going to the market. I'll be right back. I can't take you. Whoa, it's just the market. We've gone to the market together before. Why can't I just come with you? And um, You knew. Yeah, I just knew that she wasn't coming back. And, and, and she left. Um, the whole day went by. She wasn't home. And a week went by. It was just my sister and I, my cousins, and the other uh, extended relative. Um, but she went to Liberia. Uh, the intention was to find my dad. And then also to check to see if she can get some more money from the bank. It was the civil war then. There was nothing left at the bank. And a check on properties and all that stuff. But she never made it back. So mm. it was just my sister and I for a long period of time. So what was, you know, days uh, morphed into weeks, months, years? Yeah. And yeah, as a child that young how do you process that how do you process that i don't know i i I got very involved that's what i did i got Mm -hmm. very involved in the camp i was in every activity Mm -hmm. like everywhere you go um you'll find me doing something you know riding an empty tire or fishing with the guys or when I started the, the the peer educator uh, program, I was very involved with that. You could hardly find me home. If you're trying to hide from me, go home. 
go to my tent. <laughs> you were never there. It was too <laughs> hot anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was too hot. So I, I kept myself occupied. And by the time I got home, it was time to sleep. I was very uh, tired. Uh. Um, I think I really started to cope my parents' absence when I came to the U.S. Okay. Um, so you came to the U.S. Your father, you discovered, had a brain tumor. Yes. Wasn't able to take care of you. Not at all. You had two stepsisters that were here from a previous marriage that your father had. Yes. Some bad blood between them and you. Yes. They don't want to keep you. Nope. So you're 17 years old, almost 18? Yeah. In a brand new country. Yes. You speak how much English? Um, very basic. Very basic. <laughs> so can kind of make by, but not really. Yes. And you have nowhere to go. Yes. What did you do? I went to Christ. Hmm. I went. That was my first, first calling. I mean, I was, I was young. I could have done a lot. I could have, I could have started working. Uh, probably wouldn't have been able to make it through high school. Mm -hmm. um, I could have ran off with friends, and but at that point when I was kicked out, I mean, where will you go? With safety. The first place is you go to God. So. so you literally, when you say go to God, not only do that spiritually, but you actually physically. went physically. I had to have to that conversation shirt. with him again. <laughs> <laughs> um, which ended up being providential, it sounds like. Tell yeah. me what happened when you went to that church after you'd been kicked out. When I went to the church, uh, there was no one there at first. I just uh, sat up uh, knee down at the podium and just started praying. And then Usher, by the name of Joe Jett, uh, came in randomly, um, mm -hmm. and she saw me. She said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm praying and um, to God. Okay. She did her cleaning around, run around. I was stay there. She was like, well, I said, well, I don't have any place to go. <laughs> so I'm here. Um, she said, well, why don't you come home with me, and we can call the pastor to see what we can do about your situation. And then uh, I started to call Pastor Drew, and he came in right away and picked me up. And I came home to a very warm bed and had some cookies at the mm -hmm. <laughs> bed stand with some fruit. Oh, wow, this is heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. My mom, Linda Green, now she's, uh, she's, she decorated everything. She love to make you feel at home so when i got there um felt at home mm -hmm. um so i was just gonna stay there until they can contact my relative and decide what they want to do with me um weeks went by there was no response there was nothing positive so they said well why don't you stay here and go to school i said okay so mm -hmm. i stayed you're 17, almost 18 years old. You can't read or write. You can only do extremely basic math. How on earth do you catch up? Study, reading a lot. My dad, then the pastor, mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time. It was hard work. Mm -hmm. It was constant reading and constant studying. And we spent a lot of time together just mm -hmm. uh, reading and studying. And he, I think he's so used to that now because he can't stop tutoring. <laughs> <laughs> he still tutors you? He's the, no, he's still tutoring other immigrants. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sweet. he spent a lot of time mm -hmm. tutoring, like, some um, 
immigrants and people who are trying to get their citizenship. Mm. So I think we spend so much time to get us studying. Wow, wow. Um, so you didn't take any of that, I mean, for granted. So many oh. kids grow up in the United States take this for granted. That was the only way out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you ended up graduating. You, I don't think we mentioned this, but you came, when you came to the U.S., you came to the Chicago area. Yes. Graduated from Batavia High School, West yes. Suburban a uh, high school in the area. Yeah. And then you had the moxie to go to junior college. Going to college, I played soccer, and I was really good at it. Mm-hmm. So I got a scholarship, of a four-year scholarship to go to Mayway College, and mm-hmm. it was more so academic-based. Mm-hmm. So you know, that was my focus. So I went for Spelman. Now you're, you're graduated. You recently married uh, Jonathan, who was someone that you... Liked and had a relationship with when you were in the refugee camp. Jonathan's in the States now trying to get his green card. You have a job now, full-time job. Things seem to be working out really well, Yes, extraordinarily well. I'm sure you're aware that there's a lot of controversy surrounding refugees, specifically Syrian refugees coming here, fear that there may be terrorists embedded with some of them. Mm -hmm. Being a refugee, someone who was a refugee yourself, how does that impact how you view the refugee crisis and even the United States taking refugees in? I think probably the percentage of terrorists or ISIS or those people that would be among those refugees, I think it's going to be very low if if there is a chance that they are even going to be among those refugees. But we just need to look at it this way. You are looking at probably thousands of people who desperately need help. And we are afraid to give them that help or limiting them to uh, li- limiting them to a better future. Majority of Americans are really good Christian, really loving, caring uh, people, and I don't think we need to use that as we shouldn't use that little fear. So we can't really turn it down because of that fear. When we were refugee, the Americans allow us into that country. The Canadians allow us into that country. Uh, UK, um, Australia. But there were rebels among us too. You know, that, that's why we need to not forget about. There were rebels among us. Some rebels that really needed help. And some of them that didn't deserve to come at all. Some of those rebels need to realize that we we realized that we're child soldiers. They were forced into the situation. And if we were not given a second chance, why were we, where were we going to be today? So I feel mm. like those people deserve a second chance to life, a second chance to love, a second chance for their children's future. And we shouldn't let the devil power up our memories and our loving and our giving and just believe that those people that are coming in are going to be good people. Why, though? I mean, you're saying that these rebels, wouldn't they have been weeded out? Because wouldn't you have all known who the rebels were among you? Uh, we would have known, but the U.N. wouldn't have known. Uh, I know Not from with my, the vetting process? Not with the vetting process. Um, you basically come in the camp as a refugee. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, when I got gash, there was the camp council that came to my family and was begging and not to take the, the, the you know begging for forgiveness um so if if you were, if your case was selected selected to come to the u.s on an asylum you go through an interview process you go through the screening process and um 
it's based on that that you you get you get given you you are given the asylum or so they don't talk to the other people in the camp who no, know they, them they do not they do not at all wouldn't that be a something they sh- something thing they should to do? Have, yeah something they should have done but they, no i think there are a lot of people that came mm-hmm. uh on asylum that shouldn't have been here and people who should have been here are not here mm. i think there are families back that were left back that desperately needed the assistance. Mm. It wasn't given that opportunity. So the UN workers, though, mm-hmm. that are vetting the who comes for asylum, are those the same UN workers that were also mm-hmm. abusing the camp mm-hmm. members? Mm-hmm. These are the people who are vetting? Yes. You, you understand this is not very reassuring for it, Americans it, that it, that's what's happening. It's not, and the UN is aware of it. I think if they were probably going to speak to people in the camp or investigate the situation a little bit in the camp and hear us out, they would have known who um, uh, who deserve uh, to come on the silence. Why didn't they do that? They spoke the language, right? They did. Yeah. yeah. They could have done that. Well, God bless you, Finda. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me and thank um, you for having me yeah and we pray that this will bring awareness to the plight of refugees and also uh, some of the abuses by those who are supposed to help the refugees so again finda thank you so much well you've been listening to seeking truth a podcast exploring issues related to faith and culture i'm julie royce and i want to thank christianity today for allowing me to use its studio to record this podcast As always, I'd love to connect with you. Just go to my blog, julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, and then click on the contact tab. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and then consider becoming a regular subscriber. And then I invite you to join me every Saturday at 11 a.m. Central Time on Up for Debate, a live call-in talk show that I host on the Moody Radio Network. You can listen live on any Moody Radio Network station or online at upfordebate.org. That's all for now. Hope you have a blessed day and continue seeking truth.